0: In 1998, DreamWorks knew they needed a hit to survive the birth of their company. It was already difficult for an independent studio to compete against the giants in Hollywood like Disney and Paramount. But Steven Spielberg, Jeffrey Katzenberg, and David Geffen made a daring move on their own and had to begin with a big risk. DreamWorks had to start out with a $2 billion loan and a few other investments, bringing their total of the start of the company to around $2.5 billion. In simple terms, This meant they had to make every move a success to begin with in order to become successful. And since they struggled with some flops at the beginning, the guys knew that 1998 had to be a year of knockout successes, which is why they put their faith in Saving Private Ryan, Ants, and a biblical animated movie, which essentially became their saving grace of massive box office success called The Prince of Egypt. I'm Chris Wineland and this is the podcast that combines Hollywood stories you might know with Christian stories you don't know. This is Forgotten Hollywood. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the forgotten history of Christians, filmmakers, and celebrities who saw the importance of Christian stories in movies and television. This is Christian Movies That Saved Hollywood. First, it's time for a pop quiz. Aside from the Bible, which book has the most film adaptations? Is it Dracula, A Christmas Carol, Sherlock Holmes, or Hamlet? Again, I'll ask the question. Aside from the Bible, which book has the most film adaptations? Is it Dracula, A Christmas Carol, Sherlock Holmes, or Hamlet? Before I answer this question, I want to take you back to a memory that most of us have if we were alive in 2004. I didn't have much understanding of Jesus or God at the time. I was 14 and, through the wishes of my grandparents, went to CCD classes in order to join the Catholic Church. I did really well in the classes, uh, not to brag, but I was pretty great. I even got 100% on uh, the tests and I won a Snickers bar, which I am still proud of today. So I guess I am bragging. But I remember telling my parents and my grandparents that some of the beliefs about God and the Catholic Church didn't make sense to me, and I didn't feel right becoming a member if I couldn't believe what I was joining. So that's where I was spiritually at the time, very uncertain and kind of confused with what I was taught in school at the exact same time as well. And then 2004 happened, and Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ came out in theaters. As much as I may have wanted to, I couldn't escape the conversation of Jesus. In fact, nobody could. Practically everyone went to see it and everyone couldn't stop talking about it. I remember stories being reported on secular radio and people coming to Christ in droves. One story of a thief stealing a Bible after seeing the movie only to feel convicted and return it again was one of the most talked about stories on the radio station I had listened to that one morning. One of the people in the movie that got saved during the filming was actually the man who played Judas. The actor named Luca Leonella was a former self proclaimed angry atheist until he accepted Jesus as his savior due to the filming. He then went home and baptized his children, sanctified his marriage, and came back to the church. Now, those stories is all that I could hear at that time. And it wasn't necessarily that movie that brought me to Christ. In fact, I didn't come to Christ until I was 17. Um, But I remember that this movie was one that brought up the conversation of Christianity to everyone in our culture. And this was one of the movies that became so vital in Hollywood that would help people to feel free to talk about Jesus and the Bible. Now, The Passion of Christ was not the only Christian movie to bring success to Hollywood. In fact, statistically speaking, Christian movies have a higher return on investment for the filmmakers. And there have been a lot of Christian and Bible movies also made throughout the time of history of Hollywood. For the sake of time, and because I don't want to follow the rabbit trail of the Christian movie genre quite yet in this season, we're going to focus on Bible movies for this episode. So if you're wanting to hear about the Christian movie genre like Facing the Giants, God's Not Dead, Left Behind, and all of that kind of stuff, let me know on Instagram at Comedy. I discuss Forgotten Hollywood history all the time on my stories, as well as personal conversations uh, with followers all the time. And I would love for you to DM me and have a conversation. I do want to do an episode in the future about Christian movies and the Christian movie genre. I'm very excited about that. Um, That will most likely happen in season two. But for now, this episode will be dedicated to film and television productions that were based on Bible stories, as well as a deep dive into the brilliance of Billy Graham's strategy in early television, which we'll get to in a little bit. Now, there have been a lot of books made into movies, sometimes multiple movies of the same book. Take, for instance, Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, which has been made for the screen 30 times, one of which included zombies, so it's up to you if you want to count that one or not, uh, although it was quite an interesting movie to watch. Hamlet by Shakespeare had over 31 movies based off the famous play. Frankenstein had almost 40 adaptations. Sherlock Holmes was over 44 adaptations. A Christmas Carol is counted at 50 different versions of the book. Les Mis has been made and remade just over 50 times. There's been 50 adaptations of Les Mis. So if you guessed any of those um, in the previous pop quiz, those ones are not the correct answer of the most adaptations towards a book. In fact, the number one movie adaptation, which surprised me, was from the book, and it's been made 62 times by the way, from Dracula. The book of Dracula has had 62 adaptations. Now, although 62 movies sound impressive, Bible movies have this vampire beat by a whole lot. There have been 230 biblically-based movies released before The Passion of the Christ in 2004, and that number of 230 doesn't even include normal Christian movies. Only those specifically taking a scene or delving into their interpretation of a scene from the Bible. Um, Those are what we've included in the 230. And thankfully, I have a wonderful assistant, Johnny Fry, who had helped me to count these. Um, And so we were just trying to figure out exactly how many. 230 is our estimate. If you ever decide to nerd out and count it yourself, I would love to know what you came up with. And again, we're not including uh Christianese movies or Christian-themed movies, because that would open up a whole different door. We're talking about movies based on the Bible. Now, there are a couple lesser-known ones that I think are worthy to talk about. One was Adam and Eve in 1912, which is on my bucket list of one of the movies I have to watch. Sodom and Gomorrah is uh, a movie that was made in 1962. And then there were a string of Jesus movies made with an all-black cast in the 1930s, which I have uh, watched and have quite enjoyed. We'll talk a little bit about that in a later episode. But if we're talking movies that were very popular in the world of culture and Hollywood, then we have to start off with a movie called The Prince of Egypt.
1: Rescued from a river. Come, Rameses. We will show Pharaoh your new baby brother. Moses. (laughs) Second born, second place. Not for long. Raised by royalty. You are not a prince of Egypt. What did you say? Everything I am is a lie. You are our son. I can't stay here any longer. Moses, please.
0: Goodbye, brother. The Prince of Egypt was a 1998 American animated musical drama film produced by DreamWorks Animation. And it was released by DreamWorks Pictures. The first feature film from DreamWorks to be traditionally animated, it is also an adaptation of the book of Exodus. Surprise, surprise. It follows the life of Moses from being a prince of Egypt to his ultimate destiny of leading the Jews out of Egypt. This was directed by Brenda Chapman, Steve Hickner, and Simon Wells. The film features songs written by Stephen Schwartz and a score composed by the brilliant Hans Zimmer. The voice cast consists of some very familiar names, such as Val Kilmer, who did a dual role, Ralph Phineas, Michelle Pfeiffer, Sandra Bullock, Jeff Goldblum, Danny Glover was in this movie, Patrick Stewart, Helen Mirren, Steve Martin, and of course, Martin Short. You can't have Steve Martin without Martin Short in a movie. <laughs> Jeffrey Katzenberg had this frequently suggested idea of an animated adaptation of the 1956 film The Ten Commandments, which became a hit and I'll talk about in just a little bit in this episode. And while he was working for the Walt Disney Company, he had suggested this quite a few times and then he decided to put the idea into production after co founding DreamWorks Pictures in 1994. Now, in order to make this inaugural project, DreamWorks employed artists who had worked for Walt Disney Feature Animation and Amblymation, totaling a crew of 350 people from 34 different countries. The film has a blend of traditional animation and computer-generated imagery created using software from Tomb Boom Animation and Silicon Graphics. I just recently watched this movie in a theater, which was a wonderful gift And I highly recommend if you get the chance, you should watch it in the theater because I was reminded just how beautiful the imagery and the animation was. It was very ahead of its time in the way that it looked. Now, as always with biblical movies, the studio saw some risks, but the leadership behind DreamWorks was professionals that knew risk very well, especially the star filmmaker, Steven Spielberg. Steven Allen Spielberg was born on December 18th 1946 in Cincinnati, Ohio, and was immediately drawn into the film world. At age 12, he made his first home movie, a train wreck involving his toy Lionel trains. At age 13, Spielberg made a 40-minute war film titled Escape to Nowhere with a cast of school classmates. The film won first prize in a statewide competition. It's worth noticing. Throughout his early teens and after entering high school, Spielberg made about 15 to 28 millimeter adventure films, and most notably, at the age of 16, Steven Spielberg snuck into Universal Studios every day for three months.
1: Are the stories true that you used to sneak onto the lot here when you were a young guy? Yeah. How old? Probably about 16. So you couldn't be tried as an adult at that point. No, I would have definitely been <laughs> taken to juvenile court and gotten a suspended sentence for giving it a good try. But I wasn't caught, thank goodness. I had a pass for three days and I just took a chance and the guard would remember I had been I had been here on three consecutive so days. regular. I walked in with no pass the fourth day and he waved me through and it was that way for the next three months of my summer vacation. Really? How I spent
0: my that summer. was Steven Spielberg driving a golf cart at Universal Studios during an Entertainment Weekly interview in 2016. In that clip, Spielberg confirmed what had been rumored for a long time, that Steven never ended up in the movie industry by accident. In fact, he snuck in and never left. It started when he decided to take a tour of the Universal Studios tour a summer when he was 16. But when he discovered that it wasn't showing the real practicality of a studio lot, Stephen waited until a bathroom break to make his great escape. He then sat in the bathroom when the rest of the tour had left, he snuck into the actual part of the studio. And it's worth noting that there was a wonderful guard that Steven Spielberg supposedly met and let him know that he just wanted to walk around for a day. And so this um, guard gave him a pass for three days, which he ended up using for three months. One of the things in his biographies that I had read about Steven Spielberg is that Spielberg had noticed that there would be actors, directors, and producers' kids that would come on the lot all the time. And he just kind of blended in. People started to believe that he was just somebody's son that could just go in to the set anytime. And he ended up being very pleasant and getting, um, you know, not too much attention, but learning the ways of. The studio, And when the studio finally did discover what Spielberg had actually been doing and he's just hanging out and he doesn't actually know anybody there, well, they were able to see the talent he had learned and eventually hired Steven Spielberg on as the youngest director to join Universal Studios. So it's safe to say that Spielberg knew firsthand how successful a risk-taking decision could be, and that was no exception when he and his team decided to tackle a Bible story. They saw the risks of course. The biggest risk was not depicting it correctly. Many, many believers that exist all around the world would watch this movie and if they felt that this movie did not properly explain Moses or honor God in this story, that this could be the end of the studio. DreamWorks was so concerned with theological accuracy that they had hired Jewish and Christian theologians to see That the movie maintained biblical accuracy. If the movie tanked, DreamWorks would too. But if it succeeded, so would the fresh new studio. The gamble was real, but the success was out of this world. The film grossed $218 million worldwide in theaters, which had made it the most successful non-Disney animated feature of the time. The film's success led to -to direct-to-video prequel and spin-off Joseph king of dreams and a, a stage musical adaptation which opened in london's west end in 2020 is also a result of this movie the song when you believe became a commercially successful single in a pop version performed by whitney houston and mariah carey in it went on to win best original song at the 71st academy awards making it the first animated film independently outside of disney and pixar films to win, as well as it became the first DreamWorks animation film to receive two nominations and win one by the Academy Awards. Um, The only one that was after that, it wasn't until Shrek uh, that DreamWorks had won another Academy Awards for Best Animated Film. And it's worth noticing the budget versus the box office. The budget of the movie was $70 million, which made it a pretty big gamble, but the box office was $218 million. So anytime you see that, plus it won Academy Awards, it is a surefire thing to know that the movie was a success. And one of the things that they had did successfully, that DreamWorks had done successfully, was get Christian leaders involved. In fact, One of the things that they did was they had brought Billy Graham on in the early version of the movie to give his input as well as other uh, believers, theologians, and pastors. Now, as I had said before, Katzenberg wanted to do an animated version of an older movie called The Ten Commandments. Now, The Ten Commandments is a wonderful cinematic masterpiece. If you have not seen it, You'll hear me say this many, many times that you must watch this movie. The Ten Commandments had a budget of only $13 million, but its box office initial release was $122.7 million. Now, this movie was made early on, and then it was remade later on. So the most popular version that I'm going to talk about is a 1956 film. There is also a 1923 film It was not as popular, but the 1956 film was a reworking of the director uh, Cecil B. DeMille's project. And DeMille did both versions of the movie, but the most popular one, most talked about one, and most rewatched one is the 1956. So that's the one that we're going to reference the most. Now, before I do, though, there is a really interesting fact about these movies. And Cecil B. DeMille was a very unique and interesting director who would put his all into a movie. In the 1923 version, DeMille wanted to cast as many ancient Jews as he possibly can. He wanted to stay as similar to the actual story. And you'll notice that in all of these movies that we're talking about, the one of the main reasons that they became the most successful Bible Jesus movies are because they tried to stay as closely to the word of God as possible, and it always paid off. Now, DeMille had hired 250 immigrant Jews as extras in the movie so that everyone there had to eat Kosher. He would also uh, not allow men and women to coexist together in an intimate way. He would have different gender sides of camp. So there would be a male side of the camp and a female side of the camp. And DeMille was very infamous or famous for this. He also made the entire set detailed exactly like and very similar to the Egyptian background that he was looking for. He was very particular on how it all looked. He wanted it to look as biblically based as possible. DeMille though, it is worth noting that during this time, he wanted to make sure that on set it was kosher, that there were rabbis on the set at all times. And again, as I had said, the genders were separated. As focused as he was to keep everything as biblically based as possible, Cecil B. DeMille actually had a secret and he was cheating on his wife right around the same time that he was filming this movie. And so it's a very interesting dynamic to see of this man that while he was filming something that became so biblically focused and became a smash hit for Christians and believers, this man himself had a little bit of sin in his own camp. Not a little bit. He had sin in his own camp, but he was trying to keep All of the people that were working for him, not sitting in the camp quite literally. So it's a, a, a very interesting perspective. DeMille, as I had said, had made the set entirely close to the Egyptian background. And one of the things that he did that was very interesting was at the end of filming, he decided to bulldoze and bury the entire set into sand, which has made it almost impossible to find any remains of this set today. There's only been a few remains that people have found, and uh, it's been very hard to find any proof that this set ever existed. So it's a very unique thing that he wanted to do. He didn't want anybody else to use this movie set. He wanted it to be used just for this movie and then be destroyed and buried. So that's just a fun fact. Now, the Ten Commandments was nominated for seven Academy Awards and a Golden Globe, and it won an Academy Award for Best Special Effects. If you watch it, it may look outdated, but just know that it was so ahead of its time. In 1999, the film was selected for, for preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress as being culturally, historically, or Aesthetically significant. And in June 2008, the American Film Institute revealed its top 10 best films in the 10 American film genres. They call it the 10 top 10. After polling over 1,500 people from the creative community, the film was listed as the 10th best film in the epic genre. Network television has also aired this film in prime time during the Passover Easter season every year since 1973. Releasing only 11 years after the Holocaust, the um, more popular version of the film, the 1956 film, it was released only 11 years after the Holocaust, and many Jewish people um, learned to love this movie when it came out. In fact, uh, Paramount Pictures CEO Adolf Zucker, who is a Hungarian Jewish person, said, we should get down on our knees and say thank you that he wants to make a picture of, on the life of Moses. This was a movie that brought many, many believers to the theaters to feel very excited to watch a movie about them and about what God had done in the Bible. Now that's the Old Testament, but there's a New Testament movie that has broken record after record, and I talked about it very quickly in the very beginning of this episode, and it's worth diving into a little bit more. I'm of course talking about Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ. It, I just kept having visions about it,
1: you know, mm. and about you know what was that like? Twelve hours like, and what was that really like? I mean, what does it mean to get scourged and crucified, and and um, and and the significance of What one single event and what one God-man has done historically and changed civilization. I mean, this Mm -hmm. is like an amazing thing. I mean, and of course, you know, you step into that arena.
0: Now, The Passion of the Christ is a 2004 American epic biblical drama film produced, directed, and co-written by Mel Gibson and starring Jim Caviezel as Jesus of Nazareth. It also starred um, Maria Morgenstern as the Virgin Mary and Monica Bellucci as Mary Magdalene. It depicts the passion of Jesus largely according to the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, of course, it drew a lot of controversy and stop signs in Hollywood. When Mel Gibson developed the project idea for this, he quickly realized that no one wanted to finance his controversial passion project. He spent years trying to find a studio that was willing to put up the budget. He got so frustrated that in 2003, Mel Gibson finally decided to do the whole project with his own money. Now, This was an extremely risky endeavor. In total, Mel Gibson invested $30 million of his own money to produce The Passion of the Christ. He then had to throw in an additional $15 million to market the movie for a total personal investment of $45 million. That's a lot of money to add to a movie all on your own without having the support of a studio or a producer. Now, typically, when a studio funds a blockbuster, an A-list actor might be lucky to negotiate a deal where he or she receives 10% of the film's profit on top of a high salary. That 10% would come after a movie distribution company takes 50% cut off the top. By paying for everything himself, Mel Gibson got 100% of what would have normally gone to a studio. He still had to give a distribution company, New Market Films, they distributed the movie into the theaters, had to give them 50% for physically delivering the movie to theaters around the country and collecting the receipts. The Passion of the Christ, though, went on to make a little more than $600 million at the box office. So in case you ever wanted to know how numbers work, Mel Gibson, got an incredible number of profit for of $300 million because he had funded the entire movie himself. And if you wanted to go a little bit more, uh, there's some information you may not know about the show business. Not only does a movie come out and movie tickets make a profit, but there's also the merchandising for the movie, which for this movie, The Passion of the Christ, actually had a surprising range of products, including uh, the nail necklaces that uh, were branded with the Passion of the Christ movie, and uh, a couple of books, devotions, various other products. This merchandise brought Mel Gibson probably another 50 to to $100 million. So his payoff was huge, and he chose, importantly, to make this movie, even though all of Hollywood thought that it would bomb. And so it's quite interesting to see a huge payoff from a risk when really, His desire was just to tell the true, true story of Jesus Christ and what he had done for us as humanity. Now, of course, the thing that made it the most controversial was its grueling scenes of pain and torture. Its grueling scenes of pain and torture made this movie stand out from other softer versions of the passion story. This is what made studios want nothing to do with it, but it's also what drew the audience to the theaters. Here's a quick interview of Mel Gibson talking about the pain and the suffering that he had included in the movie of Jesus. And the person interviewing had asked the question, do you think that it was too much? And I love his response.
1: Well, you brought the pain to it. Which yeah. I don't. Nobody else had
0: really ever done. No, they. You know,
1: usually seem, it was usually like bad wigs and people speaking in bad Shakespearean dialogue with, you know, with a little trickle of blood and stuff. And I sort of, you know, got gritty with it. Did you ever think it was too much? Of course, it was too much. Yes, that was the whole point of it. It was the mm-hmm. mystery of suffering, and uh, which is the sacrificial lamb. You know, I mean, if it was easy, it isn't worth much. Mm. So, and believe me, I did a lot of research on it, and according to all the research, it was way worse than that, anything I showed you.
0: Now, it also helped that Mel Gibson made it a priority to get the biblical views and opinions of pastors after the movie had been made. He knew that it would be important to get the buy-in of Christians and work together to accomplish the mission at hand. In fact, before the movie was released, Mel Gibson previewed the movie to over 4,500 pastors nationwide for feedback on the film with the purpose to maintain biblical accuracy. It's also worth noting that The Passion of the Christ opened strategically on Ash Wednesday. Most movies, especially back then, would open on a Friday and Mel Gibson understood the purpose of opening it up on a Wednesday, but not just any Wednesday, Ash Wednesday. And People responded in droves with their pastors having already watched the movie, coming to church and telling everyone that they need to watch the movie. and It also conveniently, coming out and premiering on Ash Wednesday, made everyone have to go see this movie. Once they did, breakthrough stories started to come through everywhere, salvation stories started to come out of this movie. People were coming, not just to the movie, but they were coming to Christ in droves and in incredible ways. And not only were there breakthrough stories that happened after the movie was made, it also happened during the filming as well. The story of Jim Caviezel getting stuck by lightning is absolutely true. The assistant director also got struck by lightning twice, which is just a really interesting thing to know. He also, this is Jim Caviezel, had a 14-inch Gash on his back from a mishap while filming being tortured. He had to have two heart surgeries during the filming of all this. He dislocated his left shoulder and all the while he got pneumonia during the filming in the blistering cold winds. And yet Jim Caviezel, who played Jesus in this movie, said it was all worth it. The film set had many, many conversions. The movie would always have a priest on set to talk with actors anytime they needed it. One of the people in the movie that got saved during the filming was actually the man who played Judas, a former self-proclaimed angry atheist, as we had mentioned earlier. And one of the other more popular salvations that happened on set was that of a Muslim man who played the role of a guard torturing Jesus. Now, I think one thing to note about this and all of the movies that I had mentioned earlier is that we should not shy away from sharing the entire gospel story when it comes to making a movie, a video, a short film, or sharing a song. If our intention is to be biblically based, maybe we should not censor anything. And We've seen that the people, when they see the true, full picture of the gospel, they tend to react and respond in a positive way. And that is a note that I would have for any Christian filmmaker that listens to this show. If you are writing or working on a movie about Jesus or about Paul in Acts or about the book of Revelation, maybe, perhaps, it is not our job or opportunity to censor anything, but it, perhaps it is our job to show the people exactly what the Word of God was trying to display and get out there. As I had already shown in a previous interview of Mel Gibson, he had mentioned that a lot of the other movies would make Jesus kind of seem a little soft, and they would put a wig on him, and they wouldn't really show the pain and suffering that was done in order to bring salvation uh, and forgiveness of sins to each and every person that would come to God. And so it brings a really important thought. And I I believe it provokes a thought for each of us as, as Christian creators, any single one of us that is creating anything, that when it comes to talking about Christ, sharing a story about Christ, sharing a biblical story about God, let us not censor ourselves. The world's already trying to censor us. Let us instead be bold and focus on him. That's my two cents. Now, getting back to the episode, there are plenty of examples of Hollywood that used biblical or Christian stories to help profit and even save some studios using DreamWorks as mentioned earlier. But what about Christians using Hollywood to bring salvation to the masses? There have been many well-known pastors who have spoken against theater and television, including Smith Wigglesworth in the early 1900s, uh, as well as David Wilkerson, who altogether condemned TV and said he didn't even own one. But in the midst of pastors who condemned the use of the medium, there were several who used television and movies to the gospel's advantage, especially one who utilized it in its utmost possibility.
1: What do you see your role as now, Dr. Graham? I'm going to continue to preach the gospel as long as God gives me breath. When I was asked to consider going into motion pictures in 1949 in California that's what I told um, those people at that time and I've told everybody since then when a president has called and asked me to take a certain job or to do something or somebody's asked me to run for an office I've told them the same thing and I would say it today as I said it then with even more authority I intend to preach as long as I have the strength to do it
0: Billy Graham had always been committed to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ by every effective means necessary Mr. Graham's evangelistic ministry began in radio and quickly incorporated television as well. Even while in its infancy, Billy Graham understood the power and reach of television. The Billy Graham Evangelistic Association was formed in 1950 and began using television as early as 1951 when nearly 12 million households owned a black and white television set. Billy Graham, along with Cliff Burrows and George Beverly Shea, used studios of KTTV in Los Angeles to produce a half-hour program that they place on as many stations as possible. In Billy Graham's autobiography, Just As I Am, released in 1997, he said this, "'Radios, books, and films have all had an important part in extending our ministry, but by far the most significant in the long term has been television.'" More than one critic has pointed out the limitations and pitfalls of television. No doubt television also had been used to promote lifestyles and points of view that are opposed to what the Bible teaches. All of that, however, and this is still Billy Graham speaking, does not rule out television as an incredibly powerful vehicle for shaping character and influencing people for good or for evil. Like most technologies, television in itself is morally neutral, it is what we do with it or fail to do with it that makes the difference Billy Graham's messages were aired on television all across the world from the very beginning of tv and he was even invited on several shows such as the tonight show with jack parr johnny carson and a, a woody allen tv special
1: my next guest is a um is a very charming and uh, provocative gentleman um he uh whether you agree with his point of view or not on things, uh, he's always extremely interesting to, um, to talk to. I, I don't agree with him on a great many subjects. There are a few that we do agree on, um, but uh, he certainly is the best in the world at what he does. And uh, Mr. Billy Graham... to be with you, Woody, and I'd like to say that there's some things I don't agree with you on. <laughs> I know, but it's a question of which one of us will be converted by the time. We, <laughs> I, I hope I can convert you to um, agnosticism by the time the show is over. <laughs> well, I've had a lot of people try, and uh, the more they try, the firm I get uh, in my conviction. Can I ask you what
0: your favorite... In all of his interviews, Billy Graham never strayed away from the gospel. He also made it a point to keep the focus on Christ and not himself. So much so that it seems as though some hosts didn't even know how to respond. Woody Allen, in his special, even responded in an interview by inviting himself to a Billy Graham crusade. That's how much Woody Allen didn't know how to deal with this interview. Uh, if you come to one of my,
1: one of my uh, movies or something, I'll go to one of your revival meetings. Well, now that is a deal. Yeah. <laughs> <I guess. laughs>
0: The boldness of Christ and God in Hollywood has proven to bring eyes and ears towards listening and seeing, not away. I think it's important for us to remember the history so that we can remember the success of boldly professing the truth. And Christians in the industry early on that had seen movies and television as a wonderful opportunity to get the truth of Jesus Christ and of God out there. People want the truth in theaters, and they want it in their televisions. We should continue to give it. For more information on Forgotten Hollywood, visit my website at chriswineland.com. You can also find all of my source material from this episode and other past episodes on my page as well. And be sure to follow me on Instagram at chriswinelandcomedy. We'll be back next week with another surprising episode of Forgotten Hollywood.